The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Would you join me as we now go to the Lord in prayer? Father in heaven, we ask that you would incline our hearts to you, open our eyes to see your glory, your power, your sovereignty, unite our hearts to fear your name, and then satisfy us with your steadfast love this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Sometimes our world feels out of control. This week is one of those times, is it not? Russia's invasion of Ukraine, as we said already, is likely the largest land and air attack on European soil since World War II. I wasn't alive for World War II, but just that sentence makes me tremble. China, after hosting the 2022 Winter Olympics, continues unfazed in its quiet genocide of the Uyghur peoples with re-education camps. Afghanistan is a humanitarian disaster that has long left our collective consciousness, and that was merely weeks ago. North Korea is reported to have tested ballistic missiles this morning. Our typically peaceful neighbors to the north in Canada recently invoked and then later revoked their emergency powers. We see rampant persecution of Christians across the globe. The top five countries where persecution of Christians is taking place is Afghanistan, North Korea, Somalia, Libya, and Yemen. In our own country, the division, the polarization, and the infighting are as stark as ever. So my question for us this morning is, where do we turn? Where do we look in times like this? The wicked seem to flourish. Injustice seems profitable. Violence seems to go unpunished. Persecution runs rampant. And for some of us, our hope for the future is beginning to run low. Prideful and arrogant rulers dominate and our world feels out of control. Where do we turn to for hope and for encouragement and for meaning this morning? Though all is not right in our world, our scripture passage this morning in Daniel chapter 4 reminds us that God is still in control. He's not lost control of the world even as it begins to split at the seams, but he holds all things together by the word of his power, even when the wicked appear to flourish. And Daniel 4 tells us, it shows us that there is coming a perfect kingdom that, be, that will be ruled in perfect justice and perfect righteousness. Let me just remind us again of where we've been because I think we need to see the flow of how Daniel is moving. So Daniel 1, King Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem, carried all of its people out into exile, including the very golden vessels of God, and he seemingly has conquered the world and Israel's God. And then in Daniel 2, we see 
that the king has a dream that Daniel interprets. And what it tells him is that, yes, you are indeed the greatest kingdom that will be on the face of the earth. You're the golden head. All the other kingdoms after you, they're going to be inferior to you. But Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 3 that Pastor John Nallen helped us see last week, he says, I don't want that. I want more. I want a 90-foot statue of my likeness, and I want all the peoples and languages and nations to come and bow before me, or you're going to get burned. I want my glory to be on full display. And in that, we see this little glimpse that the, the God of Daniel, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is a greater God. He preserves them. And now we come to Daniel 4, which you just heard read, and about 30 years transpired between chapter 3 and now chapter 4. So a long period of time. And what makes chapter 4 so unique, as hopefully you heard when it was read, is that it's dictated by King Nebuchadnezzar. One commentator says, this is the only chapter in Scripture composed under the authority of a pagan. Just think about that for a moment. It's it's a stunning chapter. It begins and ends with Nebuchadnezzar speaking in the very first person. And see how it opens in verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It almost starts like a Pauline epistle. And the context for this chapter, though, is is what we need to see. And, And it's a little bit of background that I think helps us as we get to the main point. The context for this chapter is Babylonian greatness. So King Nebuchadnezzar is at the height of his power and he rules the vast majority of the world. For any of the kids who are with us who've studied ancient history, you know this. Babylon was a great kingdom. There was an ancient Greek historian, Herodotus, who visited Babylon about a hundred years after Nebuchadnezzar's time. And he was still amazed by its grandeur. Babylon was a technically advanced city for its time. It boasted of a double wall system that surrounded the city at some points being 21 feet thick. Babylon had eight main gates, one of which is the Ishtar Gate, which stood at 40 feet tall and had beautiful decorations and designs. And we still have archaeological evidence for this gate today. You can Google it and see its remains. There were 53 temples in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar also built the Hanging Gardens, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world because his wife really wanted a garden. (laughs) To say that Babylon was an amazingly beautiful and magnificent city is a terrible understatement. It was the most amazing city. Alexander the Great wanted to make Babylon, 200 years later, hit his administrative capital. But the surprise in chapter 4 is this. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't tell of his own greatness, but rather the greatness of the Most High God. Look at verse 2 and 3. Keep your Bibles open. We're going to trace this entire chapter together. Verses 2 and 3, it says, It has seemed good to me, this is Nebuchadnezzar writing, 
to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. These are the same words that show up right at the end. They bookend the entire chapter. Nebuchadnezzar is praising Daniel's God. A 180 degree turn has happened in Nebuchadnezzar. And the question for us this morning is why? How did that happen? How does Nebuchadnezzar go from thinking, I am the biggest, baddest man on the face of the earth, to saying, oh, there is a great God. There is the most high God, and I am his inferior. How does that transformation take place? That's what we're going to see this morning in chapter 4. Our plan is to trace the two interconnected storylines in chapter 4. And so the first storyline is verses 4 to 27, which is Nebuchadnezzar's nightmare. Nebuchadnezzar's nightmare and Daniel's interpretation, verses 4 to 27. And the second story is when the nightmare becomes reality a full year later in 28 to 37. And we're going to walk through these two interconnected stories. And the main point is going to emerge from the chapter for us. So Nebuchadnezzar's nightmare. And we're looking at this vision in verses 4 to 18. We won't reread all of chapter 4 since we already had it read, but just keep your Bible open and follow along as we trace the story. Verse 4 says, He was at ease in his house and prospering in his palace. So King Nebuchadnezzar is just relaxing. He looks out. There's peace on every border. He's conquered all the nations around him. Things are going really well. I got a lot of money. I'm feeding all my people. There's no revolts, no protests. This is a good time to be king. He's on top of the world. This is about 50, uh, 30 years later, and Daniel is about 50 years old. He's lived in exile in service to a pagan king for quite some time. And I think just as a little aside, it's good to remember. Sometimes when we read Daniel or we read the book of Acts, we think, I want my life to look like that. This amazing highlight reel. And 30 years have passed for Daniel, and we just get these little highlights. Most of life is faithful plotting in obedience to Jesus. Don't be discouraged if your life is faithful plotting right now. So, verse 5, he has this terrifying nightmare that made him afraid and caused him alarm, like he has typically done. He calls the wise men in, they can't interpret it, and then he calls Daniel. And Daniel is described, look at verse 8, as the one in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. That phrase repeats again in verse 9 and repeats again in verse 18. It actually repeats again in chapter 5. Who else is described as one in whom is the spirit of the holy gods? There's one other person in all of scripture. Joseph. Joseph in Genesis 41, 38, after he interprets Pharaoh's dream about the seven years of plenty and the seven years of famine, he is called one who has the spirit of the holy gods. So Daniel is like a new Joseph that faithfully serves a pagan king in exile. Now, the story keeps building in its expense because we hear that it's a frightening dream, but we haven't yet heard the actual dream itself. And then Nebuchadnezzar finally shares that in verse 10. A great tree, tall and strong, with big branches and glorious leaves, and it provides shade and shelter and fruit and food for all flesh. 
I think what this image is trying to evoke for us is the beauty and the magnificence of the Garden of Eden. It suggests this far-reaching, glorious kingdom. But the frightening part comes now in verse 13. A watcher, a holy one, I think this is an angel, came down from heaven and declared, chop down the tree, lop off its branches, strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit. The tree is destroyed, but the dream takes an even more ominous turn. Look at verse 15. It says, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field, and then let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. So it's not just this tree, but now it's speaking of a person. And Nebuchadnezzar, as he's had this vision, he's had this dream, he can begin to see the writing on the wall. And this is going to mean that he's going to become like a wild animal. And this says that it's going to be for a period of seven periods of time. Verse 16. This is the Hebrew number for completeness. It could be seven years, but it doesn't necessarily give us that level of specificity. Now, the central theme of our passage comes out in verse 17. Look at this. It says, The judgment is coming for this purpose, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This verse is repeated almost verbatim in verse 25 and again in verse 32. And we're going to come back to this verse. But for now, what we can see is that Nebuchadnezzar has received this frightening vision, this nightmare. And the purpose of it, purpose of the dream, the vision, and then it coming to pass is so that all who live would know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Now, Daniel interprets this. We see that in verses 19 to 27, and it switches to a third-person narrative, no longer Nebuchadnezzar writing in the first person. And I think the reason for that is because he loses his mind and he can't write that portion. It switches back later. But what we see is that this dream actually frightens not just Nebuchadnezzar, but it terrifies and frightens Daniel so that you get the king encouraging Daniel to disclose the dream. Don't be afraid. Don't be alarmed, it says in verse 19. And then Daniel gives the interpretation, and this climactic moment comes in verse 22. It is you, O king. It's almost like Nathan coming to King David after he's told him the story, and he says, you are the man. He says, you're the tree, King Nebuchadnezzar. You're going to be cut down and you're going to become like a wild animal. He elaborates in verse 24 and 25. You shall be driven from among men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. You shall be wet with the dew of heaven. Seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know. See the repetition again. Till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. The terrifying vision is that the king's going to lose his mind. He's going to live like a wild animal, run about eating grass, defecating in the wilderness. And this is going to happen for not just one period of time, seven periods of time. So that King Nebuchadnezzar would know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men. But even with this dire judgment, we see this little glimpse of hope. That it's going to be, his kingdom is going to be restored, verse 26, when he recognizes that heaven rules. 
And then Nebuchadnezzar finally admits that God is sovereign. His kingdom is going to be restored to him. So the central truth of Daniel 4 is that we are not the center of the universe. We are not the ones who make the world go round. Whether you're a king or a president or a prime minister or a governor, God is the sovereign ruler of heaven and earth who is in control of everything. And he is the one who is ruling and reigning on high. Daniel even gives King Nebuchadnezzar some advice. Verse 27, he says, Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. So Nebuchadnezzar was so busy building his 90-foot statue, getting everyone to worship him, that he had neglected that his rule was to be characterized by mercy to the oppressed and by righteousness. And Daniel warns him, if you repent, God may relent. He may hold back his judgment. And we'll see that Nebuchadnezzar doesn't listen. So this first story builds and climaxes with Daniel declaring that God's judgment is coming. Now this leads us to the second kind of second storyline where the nightmare becomes reality. We see that in verses 28 to 37. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. Just cue up the dramatic music at that point. He doesn't listen. He doesn't repent. He doesn't heed Daniel's warning. And so all of it comes to pass. About a year later, he's walking up on his roof, looking at all that he has made, looking at his prosperity, his power, the famous hanging gardens, fortified walls, all the surrounding nations as his subjects. And he says, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of of my majesty. Look how awesome I am. That's where Nebuchadnezzar is at. Nothing compares to the greatness of Nebuchadnezzar. Not Pharaoh, not Caesar, not Alexander the Great. It's like when sports fanatics get together and we argue who's the goat, right? Who's the greatest of all time? Is it Michael Jordan? Or is it LeBron James? Or is it Tom Brady? Or is it Tiger Woods? Nebuchadnezzar would stand up with Pharaoh in the room and Alexander the Great and Caesar, and he would say, I'm the goat. Yet little does he know he will literally become like a goat. (laughs) Nebuchadnezzar attributed all of his success, all of his prosperity to his own power. And so even while the words are coming out of his mouth, this is the scripture saying God laid down the hammer immediately. Verse 31, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, and hear it again, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. The tables have been turned. The greatest king of the greatest kingdom has now become the lowest human in all the kingdom. Actually, he's become subhuman, living like a wild beast, driven away from among men. His hair grew long, his nails like bird's claws. And this is a warning 
for not only Nebuchadnezzar, but it's a warning for us all. Everything that we have, our minds, our bodies, our intellect, our success, our education, our wisdom, all of it, is it not from God? Did he not give it to us? We are wonderfully and fearfully made by God, and yet we were made to glorify and enjoy him forever. God establishes kings and kingdoms, even Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, even Russia and Putin, and even North Korea and China and the United States to be instruments in the hands of the Most High God. The last part in 34 to 37 is where Nebuchadnezzar gets restored. Turns back to first-person narration, and in verse 34 he says, I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. These are stunning words coming from the lips of a pagan king who stands back and says, there is a God in heaven, and I'm not him. He now sees reality more clearly than ever. He's been given the gift of true spiritual sight. The cataracts of pride have been removed from his eyes so that he can truly see. And as a result, he praises God. Maybe just one question for us this morning. Do we have cataracts of pride that are clouding our vision this morning? Amazingly, Nebuchadnezzar is restored. His reason returned, verse 36. My majesty and splendor returned to me. I was established in my kingdom, and even still more greatness was added to me. And the chapter concludes this way this way in verse 37. I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. That's a stunning phrase. God has just made him into a wild animal for seven periods of time. And he says, all his works and all his ways are right and just. He is now seeing clearly for the first time in his life. So what's going on? Daniel 4, the story about King Nebuchadnezzar, is a living illustration of Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So the main point of our passage is that the Most High God rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he wills. God gives and takes away power and authority according to his perfect wisdom, according to his sovereign control. All that he does is wise and good and right. And so I want to draw out a few applications for us this morning. And the first is this, beware of pride. A theme that runs through this passage is the warning against pride. This can take many forms. We can stand in the mirror and and admire our appearance. Or we can stand over kind of our accomplishments and look out and say, I am awesome. We can take pride in all sorts of things. Our families, our money, our education, our intelligence, our upbringing, our hard work, 
our persistence. And we think we are the key to our success. And yet the Apostle Paul writes, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? 1 Corinthians 4, 7. This passage is a warning for all of us to recognize that we are all servants and stewards of the gifts that God has given us. So beware of prideful boasting and arrogance. But there's the other side of the coin with pride and boasting. Pride can manifest not as boasting, but rather in our suffering. Trials and challenges maybe are around every corner. We're experiencing deep suffering, and then instead of saying, I'm awesome, we say, why, God? How dare you? Why would you do such a thing to me? I deserve better. Well, perhaps some of us don't even think of God at all, which was Nebuchadnezzar's problem. How dare God deal me this bad hand? Doesn't he know? I've tried to follow him. I'm trying to obey him. Why would he do this to me? And we question God's wisdom. That's what happened with Job in the Bible. He took issue with the bad hand that he was dealt. And how did God rebuke him? He said, Will you condemn me that you may be right? Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? One of the things that Daniel 4 is trying to help us see is that we ought not question the wisdom of Almighty God. Daniel 4 warns against arrogance so that those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. So pride, whether boasting in ourselves or blaming God or ignoring God, whatever form it may be, it is ultimately deadly. The second application we ought to see is that we are to be encouraged beholding the very providence of God. Be encouraged by beholding the providence of God. The main application of this passage, I think, is encouragement so that we would see that we have a sovereign God. So Daniel was written for a people who were exiled and suffering. They've been chastised and judged for their disobedience to Yahweh, to God. And so they're looking out and they're tempted to despair over the wickedness and the arrogance of wicked rulers and wicked nations. And this chapter is written so that we would see through the wicked kings, through the wicked kingdoms, and believe that our sovereign God is in control. Not only is he sovereign, but he's powerfully at work, purposeful sovereignty, so that his providence is working out for the good of his people, according to his wisdom, for his glory. God is sovereign over it all and can tear down the kingdoms of men instantly if he so desires. And so for us this morning, if you walked in burdened, feeling like the world is out of control, don't despair. Do not despair whether rulers or presidents or prime ministers or dictators or diplomats. God is in control. Regardless of Putin, Xi Jinping, Biden, Trump, Trudeau, or Kim Jong-un, any other ruler, God has got it under control. We do not need to live in fear of the future at all, period, full stop. 
God is in control. Evil kingdoms and wicked rulers will all end up in the trash heap of history. And yet our God will reign forever and ever. King Nebuchadnezzar's words himself confess it. This kingdom will last forever. His dominion will reign and reign and reign. Even Satan cannot stop the advance of Christ's church or the fulfillment of God's promises or the consummation of his kingdom. Amen? Amen. Now, one question you might have as you read this text or heard it read, does Nebuchadnezzar get saved? We want to know, does the story end happily ever after? Does Nebuchadnezzar ultimately surrender and cast aside all of the other idols and finally live with faithfulness to God? Because he's seen this along the way with Daniel and, and, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He says, if anyone says anything bad about this God, Daniel's God, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's God, I'm going to tear him from limb to limb. And yet it didn't mean that he ultimately followed him. Did King Nebuchadnezzar come to saving faith? I don't know. The point, I think, of Daniel 4 isn't whether or not King Nebuchadnezzar came to faith, but rather it was to reveal the power and the sovereignty and the authority of the one true and living God. But then the pressing question that's left for us this morning is have we surrendered and humbled ourselves before this king and God. The question that should be on our minds is not whether King Nebuchadnezzar got saved, but are we saved when we behold the splendor and the majesty and the sovereign power and the providence of this God? King Nebuchadnezzar was humbled by being made into a wild animal, and yet to come to Jesus, we too need to be humbled in that same manner. We need to Admit that we're sinners and that we can't save ourselves. We got to put aside all of our arguments and long lists of accomplishments to say why we don't deserve punishment or why we've earned our way into heaven. We need to come and say, I can't do anything to save myself and I fall at the mercy of the most high God. And it means surrendering to Jesus, repenting of our sins and asking him for his forgiveness and receiving his free gift of salvation. Today, even today, can be a day of salvation for some. If that's you this morning, we would beckon you to come and bow the knee to King Jesus. He is a gracious, loving king who receives all who come. The main point of our passage has been That the Most High God rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. So who's he given it to? King Jesus. So when Jesus says in Matthew 28, before he gives the Great Commission, all authority, hear that again, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I've received it all. All of the other kingdoms, all of the other rulers, all of the other power has now been given to King Jesus. The kingdoms of men are being replaced by the kingdom of heaven and is being ushered in by Jesus. 
So God has sent his son, Jesus, into the world, the most humble being that ever lived on the face of this earth. And he came and he proclaimed good news to the poor, liberty to the captive, sight to the blind, and to set free the oppressed. He waged war against Satan, resisted temptation, and put all the demonic powers on notice. When when Jesus came into the area of the Gerasenes with the demoniac who had the legion in him, What was that encounter like? That man who would break off chains and overpowered everyone else who came into his presence fell down before Jesus. And what did he say, though, in Mark 5? He says, what have you to do with me? Jesus, son of the most high God. Most high God. Same phrase that we see here in Daniel 4. Even the demonic powers know that Jesus has come. He is the rightful owner of all power and authority. And he's come to usher in this forever kingdom that will reign forever and ever. When Jesus sent out his disciples, the 72, to go and cast out demons in his name. They came back and they were, you know, super jazzed. And they were like, Jesus, even the demons listen to us. What did Jesus say to them? He said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. So what we see in Daniel 4 is that all authority has now been given to King Jesus and he has come and he's established his everlasting kingdom. And yet Satan seemingly gets the upper hand, doesn't he? Jesus is crucified on the cross, buried, dead, and yet victoriously rises again from the dead, coming out of the grave to rule and reign forever, vindicated by his father. And what did Jesus do in that moment? Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them by the cross. And so, if God is for us this morning, who can be against us? No one. For our Ukrainian brothers and sisters, if God is for you, who can stand against you? He will sustain you until the very end to live faithfully to King Jesus, even in exile, even if it means losing your life. The Most High God rules over the kingdoms of men and has now, once for all, given all authority and power and glory and honor to King Jesus, who is establishing his worldwide kingdom that will never end. And the dominion of Jesus as King Nebuchadnezzar himself stated, is an everlasting dominion. The kingdom of Jesus endures from generation to generation. And there is coming a day, brothers and sisters, Revelation eleven fifteen that says, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. King Jesus will return, and he says to us, surely I am coming soon. So this morning, 
Whatever we see on the news, whatever we see in the news in three decades from now, whatever happens, whatever world our children grow up in, we do not need to fear. We do not need to doubt. We do not need to let our knees shake and for our voices to tremble because King Jesus sits on the throne and he will never fail. He will never falter and his kingdom will reign forever and ever. Amen. So don't for a moment doubt that we have a most high God. He is the ancient of days and we worship him with all of our hearts and he is worthy of all of our praise. Let's pray. Father, oh, let these truths sink deep into our souls so that whatever comes in the future, we will be steadfast immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord. And do it for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine this morning as well. Oh, buttress their faith with the sovereignty of God that is a firm foundation that will never fail. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720-13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.